My name is Dean Davis, and my family and I have been attending uh, New Life. We are members now. Uh, I think it's been three years, although with restrictions and all, in part only feels about a year and a half, but it's so good to be together. And I've had the privilege of being able to, pe- I, I have the privilege of being able to speak with you this morning on Psalm 83 as we do the, the next psalm in our uh, study of songs, of psalms for the summer. Um, I want to just begin though before I get started and jump in with, uh, with a word of prayer. Just take, take what we're going to do here today to, to the Lord. So would you join me for a moment as we pray? Let's do that. Lord, I, I do thank you so much for the, what feels like just a renewal as we get to get back together. Thank you too for your word. Help us to glean what you would have us to learn from Psalm 83, that you might be glorified in it, that our hearts would be open, that your Holy Spirit would be working. So Lord, we just lift our time to you and thank you for it in your name. Amen. Well, as a, as a former speech and debate dad, um, recovering speech and debate dad, one thing that happened a lot in debate was if, if the debaters were interested in, in helping the judges to make a decision that was going to go their way, they would uh, paint a road map, if you will. Um, that's a concept that I would like to toss at you today, a little bit of a road map about what you can look forward to uh, with today's passage. So... As you know, it's Psalm 83, and my roadmap begins this way. So this psalm, as we talk through this, is, should be considered, if you're taking notes, a community lament. This psalm is a community lament. Asaph sees a great deal going wrong and is addressing in his prayer this perceived silence that you, when we read the, uh, the whole chapter a minute ago, um, yeah, in verse 1, this perceived silence, he's addressing it, and, and he's expressing to God what he would like him to do about it. He ends with this surprising request in verse 18 um, that for those that are opposing Israel would actually come to know him. Once we've gotten through the chapter, we're going to take a look at a few places where Jesus can be seen in this passage. And then we're going to finish up our time today by looking at why should we be praying for the lost. In the psalm, I think if we could paint a broad stroke and look at what the psalm is doing. I, I gave it a title, A Prayer for Help When War Threatens. But it might, might also be called um, Prayer for the Lost. And we'll see what I mean as we move forward. So I've broken the psalm down into these four pieces. The complaint is the first five verses. Um, Israel's and therefore God's enemies in verses 6 through 8. Israel and therefore God's enemies in 6 through 8. The third piece of the outline would be verses 9 through 12. I call that hope and confidence. You could call it faith, but what Asaph is going to do is he's going to look at some things that have already happened in the history of Israel, point out how that ended positively. Lord, help this situation to look that way too. 
So hope and confidence, verses 9 through 12. And then finally, Asaph has a request. The request he gives in verses 13 to 18. And I see verse 18 is the key verse. Uh, the key verse to the whole chapter. It's when Asaph basically says, Lord, in all that I've already said about wiping these people out, really what it's about is that they would come to know you. And so that, that ends up being our big idea. So as we move on, um, some commentators connect this psalm with 2 Chronicles 20, 1-37, and the victory won in Jehoshaphat, I can speak, Jehoshaphat's time. Others see the collection of ten enemies that are described in, in verses 6 through 8 as set against Israel, that are set against Israel, not referring to really to one specific occasion, but to refer, to refer I can, let me try that again, can refer to basically the, uh, the constant danger of extermination that Israel lived under and that is rel relative to both ancient and the modern world. So let's, let's jump in. The complaint, verses 1 through 5. We're going to start, of course, with verse 1. It says, O God, do not keep silent. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have, <clears throat> those who hate you have raised their heads. In these two verses, Asaph says that it seems as if, God, you're doing nothing and that your enemies are getting to ready, ready to fight you. They, they fight God by fighting his people, and that is Israel. I like what F.B. Meyer said. It is so difficult sometimes to go on living day, uh, to live day by day without one authoritative word, and we are prone to rebuke him for silence. The word was manifested in him. The silence of eternity was broken. You see, God is not silent. He has spoken through his written word, the Bible, and the living word that is Jesus. Now, God being silent is what Asaph is perceiving. And it's a significant piece of, of what we feel, I think, is sometimes happening in our Christian life. Like, where is God in this? And though I feel that the main thrust of the passage is praying for the lost, um, I want to take a moment to, to just talk about what do we do when we think God is being silent? How do we tackle that? And I, I have five things, and I'm going to not spend very long on them, but here they are for those that, that are taking notes. The first thing would be to simply examine your life. Is there any unconfessed sin? that might be hindering you hearing what God is saying. The next thing would be, if God is seeming silent, is to accept God's authority. See, God isn't under any obligation to inform you or let you know really anything. Number three, listen to what he is saying. Although God may seem silent regarding specific request or petition, Remember that he is in the constant state of communication with us through his word, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Number four, recognize that silence can be intimate. Silence can also be a sign that God trusts you. And number five, keep talking to God. Just because God seems silent doesn't mean that you should doubt him or stop 
praying. So I wanted just to mention that. Um, as we jump back into to the passage, looking at verse 3, they lay crafty plans. That is, the, those that are opposing God, they lay crafty plans against your people. The people are Israel. They consult together against your treasured ones. Treasured ones, again, that's the Israelites, the Jewish people. It was true then for the nation of Israel, and it is true today for both Jews and Christians that those who are against God have gathered together to form a coalition. And in verse 4, they say, Come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one Honda, I mean accord, against you they make a covenant. I slipped that in there for all those dad joke lovers out there. You see here, Asaph is expressing to God in this prayer that those that are plotting against them want them to be gone. Not just gone, but to have no trace of them left. Like the ants that are crawling across your countertop at home, you know, it isn't good enough just to wipe the ones you see away. You want them all gone. All of them, even the ones you don't see. You know, looking at contemporary times, do the enemies of Israel or Christians or the church act with one accord to destroy it? Wicked men wish that there were, that there might be, really, no religion among man or mankind at all. They would gladly see all of its restraints shaken off, all of the preaching, all of the professing, all of, all of it just wiped out. If they could, they would make that happen. So who are these enemies that Asaph is referring to? We see that in part two, the enemies, verses six through eight. I'm going to read that now. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gabal and Ammon and Amalek, Phistilia and the inhabitants of Tyre, Ashur also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Selah. We see here in this list of these ten forces that are against Israel that Asaph seems to be following a geographical order. It's like if we had a map of Israel in front of us, it'd be as if he goes from the southern uh, countries and forces that are against them to the east, and then when he's done there, he goes west and north. So it's kind of like two, two lines. We don't know why he did that, but that sure seems to be what he did. But I think it's important that we notice two things in this. He gave a list of ten opposing forces. Like, what's defined there? And I, I think there's two. The first is that the enemies of God's people and his church have always been many. The enemies of God's people and the enemies of his church have always been many. I think we need to make sure we don't miss that. And the second being is that it shouldn't be overlooked that Asaph knew exactly who the enemy was. He knew exactly who they were. He listed all ten of them. We do well to keep this in mind as we live our lives. We should never lose sight of who the real enemy is when we should not underestimate the enemy 
we should not underestimate Satan's power. Paul, in Ephesians 6, reminds us when he's talking about the armor of God, about the dependence that it takes on our part, what is necessary for us to battle the evil that is in the world. That isn't today's sermon, but an important thing that we realize when we look at all of what's opposing us is how do we combat that. Moving on, that next group of verses, hope and confidence, in verse 9, this is, this is where we read, Do to them as you did to Midian, and we keep going, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor and became dung for the ground. So the Midianites, those were the people that led the Israelites to idol worship. And as far as Sisera and Jabin, the story of what happened there, if you want to look it up, it's, it's in Judges 4 and 5. Jabin, he was the king of, of Canaan. He was the oppressor of Israel. And Sisera, he was his, basically his army commander. And he was in charge of the army. The army was you know, sizable. They had 900 chariots in this army. And God used Deborah and Barak, the leader of the army, to defeat them. So, you know, if you're into action and adventure, then go take a look at Judges 4 and 5. It's a pretty exciting story. The part that sometimes people wonder about is who became dung for the ground? Dung for the ground literally means carcasses left on top of the ground to rot like manure. He's saying, do that to them. Wow. And then he moves on in verse 11. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmana, who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. Now, all four of these, of these people, Oreb and Zeb, Zeba and Zalmana, they were, they were princes and kings um, and of, of Midian. And we see the accounting of what happened to them in Judges 7 and 8. Both of them, or that is, both pairs of them were slain or killed by Gideon. Um, we, we see also in verse 12 that God's enemies were not only seeking to kill and wipe out Israel, what were they doing? We can see when it talks about the possession for ourselves of the pastors of God, that they were actually looking to take what God had given them, and that was the land. Their eyes were on the wealth that they could loot. They did not realize that, well, their fatal mistake was that you know, robbing God is a serious mistake that they were about ready to make if they continue. And so th this takes us here to verse 13. The request from 13 to 18. The request that Asaph was, was making, he says in 13, Oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. Whirling dust and chaff before the wind. I, I recall growing up on the farm that was in the highland area of Beaver Creek and being on my tractor working the field. And if I was out there during this time of year when it's very dry and there's a little bit of a breeze blowing, the dust that created, especially if I was you know, moving very fast, it was, it was like a, a tornado almost. You'd look out there and you couldn't see me because it was so much dust, but quickly a little bit of a breeze just takes that dust and just 
moved it along. The problem was I was constantly creating more of it. Or another thing to think of is like, if you ever had a campfire and the smoke is coming up and you move out of the way of the smoke and it takes hardly any little breeze to, now, the, now you're in the smoke again and you move over to the other side, barely any breeze and the smoke is on you again. It's that idea of light and easily moved that Asaph is wishing for these enemies. Whirling dust or chaff of images are these images of what is lightest and most easily moved to have almost like no account at all. And in verse 14, as fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Asaph says, cause them to be consumed quickly. The enemies, make them go away. Don't mess around. But make it happen quickly. Wildfires in, in uh, California, uh, Oregon last year, this is, sort of hits home with us. Uh, I, can, I recount from just a dozen days ago when my family and I were traveling to Southern California. We we're on I-5 about ready to hit the grapevine when we see smoke in the hills. And if you know those hills, they're not laden rich with forest, but there's plenty of grass to burn. And we were, we were heading south, and the traffic was still flowing and the, the look, uh, northbound, and it looked like the, the hill was on fire. It was. As we got closer, you could look over and see the flame. And it was just moving. like uh, It was really moving quickly. And John Roberts, uh, our pastor at Gladstone, he, he gave me this information. He says, wildfires normally travel up to six miles per hour in forests and up to 14 miles an hour in grasslands. Last fall, I read this article that said last fall in California, it was said that during the fires that they were having, that um, the rate at which the, the burning was happening was one acre per second. I just that was incredible. Like it's moving so quickly. One acre is two, a little over 208 feet square every second. As fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so you may pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. That they would flee and leave. Asaph's request, make them go away. And in verse 16, 16 through 18, fill their faces with shame that you may see their, that they may seek your name. Whoa, he just has changed gears severely here from all of this dire death and gloom to fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name. Oh Lord, in verse 16, um, he's, he's saying they are going to seek the, the Lord's name and as we continue in 17, let them be put to shame. We've got to talk about what the shame means. And dismayed forever, let them perish in disgrace, that they may know, and here's verse 18, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. This idea of shame, it's mentioned in 16 and again in 17. Shame can move people in one of two directions. It can produce a humbling that would lead to per, uh, repentance or 
it can be, there can be a hardening of heart that, in which bitterness is created. Asaph was asking for the efforts of the coalition, the efforts of the enemies of Israel and of God to fail. And so to bring them shame and confusion. I guess one of the best examples in the Bible about someone being shamed for what they had done was, was the Apostle Paul. He had actually persecuted the Christians, and when he came face to face with the light of the world, he repented and it changed. Asaph is saying a similar thing. Asaph is saying here, show them your face and make them ashamed for what they have done. Yet in, in the second half of verse 16, we see that behind all of it is this merciful purpose. His prayers have as their intended purpose to scourge men into submission and cause them to turn to God. In verse 18, we see uh, God's, the, the passage Asaph is, is speaking to God here says, uh, Know Most High. That is, that they would know who the Most High is and that they may know who Jehovah is. The Gentile nations need to know that the God of the Bible is the only God. That we may say in prayer, Lord, show them who you are. This is what he's saying. Asaph says to God, defeat these mighty nations that have come against Israel and all the nations will glorify your name. Nations would glorify him. Do you know that the incident in the Red Sea made many countries reluctant to come against Israel after they saw what happened there. Because of the mighty God, what mighty God had done and the miracle that he had done. When this psalm was written, a good amount of time had passed since God had brought Israel out of Egypt with his mighty hand. And the nations around Israel from the south to the east and the west to the north, uh, I think had forgotten that God fights for Israel. If God were to do this for Israel, here Asaph says, all the nations around the world would know the power of Jehovah, the Almighty God, that Jehovah, the self-existing one, the eternal one, whatever you choose to call him, that there is no one greater, that he is the supreme ruler of the universe, that the primary objective Asaph's point is the primary objective of chastisement is conversion, that they may know that God is God and they're not, that God is God and that we're not. Amazing. God is silent and yet he wants all to come to know him. Well, I want to take a, a moment to talk about three ways that I think this text points to Jesus. There, there may be more, but these are what I found. And in verse 1, the, the passage there, that portion of this chapter that mentions that, that God is being silent, you know, sometimes Jesus seems silent. An example would be the time when he's floating in the boat asleep and the storm comes up 
and the disciples look around and he's in the back of the boat taking a little cat nap. Like, what's going on? You're missing all the action. We need, we need some help. Why are you not on the job? Those were my words. He's silent. They had to, like, stir him. You know, if they hadn't woke him up, maybe he would have slept for a long time. Another place I see Jesus is in verses 3 and 5, where the, I called it a coalition, where the group of the enemies were together. And Jesus united people against him, too. It isn't what we th- the first thing, of course, we think of when we think of Jesus and what he did. But an example is in Luke 23, 12, where it says that day Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. They united to be against Jesus. Of course, Jesus unites those that believe in him as well. The third place I I found Jesus was in verse 18. Jesus is the name above all names. In Philippians 2, 8 to 10, it says, In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So with all of that said, and we understand what the big picture is going on here in Psalm 83, that Asaph was feeling like God wasn't listening, and He's, point, he's pointing out all that is going wrong and who the enemy is to bring us to a point at the end where, hey, really do this so that we'll see them come to know who you are. So the application seems to be clear that we should be praying for the lost. Asaph was praying that the enemies would come to know who the Lord is. So why pray for the lost? Why, why do this? Well, I offer four reasons why we would do that. The first reason that we should pray for the lost is because of God's heart. The greatest verse in the Bible, arguably, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You know, even people that don't know the Bible know that verse. But far fewer know the verse that follows. John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Taken together, these two verses tell us that God's love motivated him to send his son to the world and that his purpose was not to condemn it, but to save it, rather, through the sacrifice of Christ. Paul in 1 Timothy 2 tells us even more about God's heart when he writes, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. In 2 Peter, Peter in 2 Peter 3, uh, verse 9, declares that God is patient, not wanting anyone to be perished or not wanting anyone to perish, but rather everyone to come to repentance. What we notice in these verses is that it seems that there's no limits at all. Paul says that 
when he means all, that he means all without any exception. And when Peter says anyone, he doesn't mean some but not others. You see, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He truly wants the lost to be saved, and he waits patiently, very patiently, giving men and women more time to come to repentance. I wonder if that's why sometimes we feel like God is being silent, is that he's giving time for the people that need to come to know the Lord, that, are, that don't have a relationship with him to do that. Or perhaps he's being silent because those that do know the Lord, maybe he's waiting for us to begin to pray for those that don't know the Lord. I just wonder. Well, the, <clears throat> the second thing that we should pray for the lost about, or why we should be praying for the lost, is because of Christ's sacrifice. Christ came for the lost, and in Luke we read, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. And he died to provide a way of salvation for the whole human race. Thirdly, we should pray for the lost because of Paul's example. In Romans 10.1, Paul reveals that his heart for his Jewish friends and neighbors and his relatives were expressed. He said, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for God to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. And you see, if Paul felt so concerned that he prayed for his own people to be saved, it seems as a natural consequence, or a nat it should follow naturally that, that we should do the same. Um, and fourthly, we should pray for the lost because of their condition. The New Testament in many places reveals to us how hopeless and helpless the lost are without Christ. They are blind, we're told in 2 Corinthians. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. And they are captive to Satan. We should pray that unbelievers might escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. And the lost, they're condemned. Whoever believes in him, John says in chapter 3, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. They are dead. Dead. In Ephesians, Paul tells us, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And again, back to John, they are bound for hell. The lost are bound for hell. It's not something, it's not a, a favorable thing thing to think about in today's culture. Sin is sin. The lost are lost. And hell's a real place. John tells us, whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. The lost, they are helpless. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent them draws him. We see that in John 6. And they're hopeless. In Ephesians 2, without hope and without God in the world, they lack understanding. 
In 1 Corinthians 2, we read that the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Desperate is the plight of those that are unsaved. Desperate is the plight of those that do not know Christ. They are blind, based on those things we just read. They are blind and think they can see. They're dead and think that they're alive. They're captive and think that they're free. They're hopeless and think they can do anything. They're without understanding and yet they think they know everything. They're bound for hell and they think that they're going to heaven. Well, ponder this question. What do you say to a dead person? Dead men can't hear, they can't see, they can't understand. They can't walk, they can't talk, they can't think, they can't feel. Dead men can't do anything except be dead. You might tell a corpse to run the high hurdles as to tell a spiritually dead person he needs to be saved. Because he's physically alive, he hears your words. But because he's spiritually dead, they make no sense to him. So, a lot has been said here. What's the answer? What should we do? Like Asaph, we should be praying for the enemies that we have, for the lost, that their eyes would be open, that they would have the ability to hear, that there would be created within them a desire to understand, that they would have a hunger for Jesus and then grant them faith to believe the gospel. In short, before we do the work of evangelism, we must fervently pray that God would go before us. And when we pray for the lost, we're saying to God, you go first. If you don't go first, then all of our efforts are really going to be in vain. Matthew, in, in his gospel, in, in chapter 5, has a section, of ver, a, a portion of verses, 43 to 48, that he talks about love for enemies. And it's a difficult thing to do. Think about all of the things that are going wrong in our world right now that you in your own mind could think of. What are we to do? I don't think our enemies today are any worse than the, the 10 groups that Asaph named in verses 6 through 8 of chapter 83. And yet, what did he do? He prayed for them. So I'd like to read this passage. And I'll pray after that, and we'll be done. Starting in Matthew 5, 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven, for he makes this sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. 
For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your word, for this psalm, and for Asaph's desire that he was expressing, and that we know is your desire, that none should perish and all come to that relationship, saving relationship, uh, knowledge of you. And so, Lord, right now, I just ask each person that is watching or is sitting with us today, hearing my voice, that, that the person that is in their life that they are aware of that doesn't know you, that their very first action would begin to be to pray for them. And Lord, I pray that as we do that, that we would recognize um, that you're not being silent and that we would see you working and that your will that all would come to know you um, manifests itself in those that we know and love. And so, Lord, we, we pray for them today. We lift those that are lost to you. We lift our, our culture and our, our, all that's happening in our world around us to you for all, the, all that is wrong that we see. Lord, we lift it to you and pray that your will be done and that you would be glorified. And we pray that in your name. Amen.